welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. I'm really happy to introduce you today to John Tung. John is a researcher with Microsoft Research at Redmond in the US, and he has a long career in industry research, having been at Microsoft since 2008 and having previously worked in other industrial research labs at Xerox Park, Sun and IBM. He has a PhD from the Design Division of the Mechanical Engineering Department at Stanford University, and he's a deep expert in distributed collaboration and in particular the use of video in this context, which is now highly relevant considering the increase in video conferencing in these pandemic times. So you'll hear the acronym CSCW used, which is the Related Research Area of Computer Supported Cooperative Work. And you might also hear HCI, Human Computer Interaction. John also serves in many senior journal editorial roles and as papers chair role in various paper chair roles for conferences that you may also hear termed AC or associate chair, managing the review process for papers. And it was this that was the trigger for this conversation because John and I are currently co-editors of a special issue of a journal and we're exchanging emails about the challenges of getting reviews and, and what's going on. So I was going to do a short related work podcast around this topic and I'd asked John if I could quote something he'd written as it seemed to articulate the problem really well and also showed enormous compassion and care for what people were going through despite the impact on himself. So I can read this quote out here still. He says, I've been a bit saddened by the amount of overwork and exhaustion out in our community evidenced by the reasons people aren't available to do reviews. Illness, caregiving, childcare, all really good reasons that people are not available to do a review. And while it makes my job harder as an editor at AC, my heart goes out even more to people who are dealing with daily stresses. All the more why I don't want to needlessly add to the stress about a late review by writing reminder messages. So he then sent a follow-up email today, though, saying that he was, wasn't just a couple of reviewers, he was getting a wave of apologies for late, late reviews. And he, he talks about how it was renewing his heartache for how hard it continues to be for some people. So I thought it would be more interesting to actually invite him for a conversation about this instead of me just riffing on it. And two hours later, we recorded this. So... In this conversation, we reflect on the increasing amount of overwork and exhaustion that we are seeing in the peer community and how this is playing out for the review process. And we also try to look at some of the broader implications and longer-term implications. John describes some of what he sees going on in terms of invisible disabilities and it being a community problem, needing solutions at the community level. We also talk about the differential effect the pandemic is having, the particular challenges for more junior people and recognising his own privileged situation. John embodies a graciousness and a generosity 
and how he approaches all these challenges, including the impact on himself, that can serve as a role model for us all, I think, in perspective taking and care. And while I happen to have John here, and he's a, an expert in video conferencing and distributed collaborations, we have a short discussion about the experiences of you know, the increasing uptake of video conferencing and lessons learned and how that reflects on the research he's done over the years. So we don't have the usual introductions here at the beginning of the conversation, um, where I normally sort of say welcome to John and you know, give a short intro to who he is. So I'm hoping that this preamble is going to do that for you because we just started talking straight away about the issues and we're talking about the reviews and reviewers and, and our roles as journal editors and papers chairs. So I, I thought it was best just to continue letting the conversation flow rather than trying to stop and, and say the usual welcome. So we're literally going to jump straight into my conversation with John Tung. Enjoy. You know, the sharing that your response and just the fact that I was getting more, it just shows what a growing problem it is. And we, yeah. we're, we're being told that there's this other, this coming wave on the soul, the whole mental health. That's so hard to predict um, that I just think we need to try to surface it so that yeah. people can, um, begin to think about it or grapple with it or, yeah. or just talk about it uh, because I think otherwise it's going to be a problem. Uh, I mean, you know that more recently I've been focusing on accessibility issues and yeah. I've been thinking about this as a so-called invisible disability um, because it is, as I said, you know, we've, we've all, had a common experience of going through the pandemic. We're all going through mm. the same pandemic, but its effects on us have been very different depending on your situation. Do you have kids? Do you Are you caregiving for an older adult? Did you go through some sort of health event? And so it, it's almost sneaky because we all have been through the pandemic. So we kind of feel like we have this common experience. Common experience. But it is so different that yeah. it feels like an invisible disability. And, and I'm kind of, I've been trying to use it in this class that I'm teaching to, to um, develop empathy around invisible disabilities mm -hmm. because we kind of each know that we're affected in a certain way, but we, and, and we kind of have to face those questions of disclosure. Well, do I tell someone that I'm like yes. at the end of my rope? Yeah. Um, and it's all, those are all very much disability kinds of questions. And so yeah. the fact that we're experiencing it and having to carefully choose who I disclose what to, to explain why I'm feeling at the end of my rope or I'm late or, you know, I'm sorry, my review's late. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's yeah. kind of interesting. Yeah. So what are the factors that you think play into those questions of disclosure? Because I guess there's the general experience of disability and who do you disclose that to, especially if it's an invisible disability. And then around the pandemic where 
people may not necessarily think of themselves as having a disability, but they know that they're having these experiences. When might they be disclosing or not? Or yeah, right, right. So a lot has to do with you know, um, like in the case that brought it to my attention. What are the reasons why I am not meeting my deadline or meeting my expectations for you? Right. Mm. So if it's if it rises to the point where I feel like I have to provide an explanation, then mm. I will disclose. Which is, I think, what also is often true for people with disabilities. It, it, mm. It's when it becomes salient that they need to explain that they've got a disability, then they, that may choose them to disclose. And then how much do I disclose? It means it's yeah. depends so much on the context, my relationship to you. Is, are you someone uh, close enough that I'm okay being vulnerable about how much I disclose to explain? Mm. Or do I just want to disclose enough to sort of provide a reason, but don't go further. And that too has been interesting about as someone asking for reviews, <clears throat> in many cases, it's a pretty, remote professional relationship. And so I feel like some of the explanations I get back could be relatively sanitized. You know, it's been chaotic. Um, and uh, I don't know how much further to ask about it um, yeah. because, you know, it's, it's up to them to disclose, but, but I could easily imagine knowing what's, Seeing what's been happening with the pandemic, mm. I can mm. easily imagine what chaotic means. And mm. and so it does make me more, you know, gracious about it, even though it makes my job harder that yeah. I have a deadline that I've got to meet as a meta reviewer. It's got to yeah. be due. And um, the fact that your review is late is making my job harder. Nonetheless, I, I get it. People, The fact that someone is willing to provide an explanation that alludes to there's something more going on, you know, helps me understand what's going on and uh, kind of makes it easier for me to apply some grace, uh, even mm. though if it doesn't make my job mm. easier. Yeah. But in um, looking at some of the reasons about how much people disclose as well, I'm also wondering about sort of, you know, the whole thing in academia where there's a lot about face management and you know like presentation yes. of being competent and especially if there are power differentials or if you're someone who may be reviewing my promotion application or interviewing me for a job you know do I do I want to also disclose that I'm not coping well at the moment because will that impact right right I mean so in a particular case of asking people to do reviews, it's not a huge power relationship, although mm. as an associate chair, I do have seniority generally, uh, and people are aware of that. Um, but I agree that that does factor into how much they want to disclose about what's going on. Mm. Yeah. So the other thing that what you said made me think of was um, and we're talking about reviewers and the challenges, everyone having a very different experience during this pandemic and reviewers being challenged often in getting reviews in on time and the way that makes your job as an AC or an editor more difficult. 
and you are also going through the pandemic and you are dealing, you know, like we, though everyone, it's not, I'm just struck by the fact that, you know, it's the reviewers who are trying to do the good thing in doing peer service but, you know, struggling to commit and it's the editors who, you know, are also struggling to deal with the pandemic and have agreed to service and play this role and then are finding it hard to fulfil their role and deadlines. And some of those deadlines are real in terms of publication schedules where there's not a lot of wiggle room. And there's also the authors. And I'm also, I've also just been thinking about the authors that I know that some of the people in my group, for example, have been really severely impacted as PhD students in the studies they've been able to get done, which then impacts the publications that they can write up, which then impacts, uh, you know, what they present for their final PhD defence, you know, um, at the end because, you know, publications are increasingly being regarded as important signifiers of the quality of of the thesis and that, you know, they're also in this mix. We're in this mix together. And how do we all look after one another? Because I love, I love the way you as an editor are, are talking about your grace, you know, being more sort of gracious in really uh, recognising the, the challenges. But how do we recognise, how do we keep that as a circle of all of us recognising? Yeah, I mean, it's a, I think it's a great question. I do, I have a lot of concern about how the pandemic, the differential effects of the pandemic and how yeah. it uh, really is going to um, negatively affect a whole class of people and kind of widen that gap between, yes. let's say, junior people and junior people. So yeah. I recognize that as someone with grown kids and I don't have any caregiving responsibilities for my adults anymore. I'm I'm blessed in not having a lot of potentially additional stresses because of the pandemic. But and and that's kind of true for a generation of senior people in just about any field, right? Mm. So in some ways, and I'm blessed because I have a job that I can very easily do work from home. Uh, yeah remotely. And so people that have all those factors going for them are able to be productive or maybe even more productive. Mm. But then Mm -hmm. people that have various factors that are increasing stressors and they're kind of correlated with being more junior are going to fall further behind or have a larger chasm behind that. I know our our group has been collecting data and pointing out, or there's general data that shows how women in general have been more affected by yeah. increased caregiving demands, childcare demands, um, and have had to pull back from the workforce perhaps disproportionately more. Mm-hmm. And so that raises questions about, you know, is this temporal blip going to have longer lasting yes. impact on yeah. promotion and advancement. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And again, does that chasm get wider because of all these yeah. correlating effects that the pandemic yeah. has? And will we forget when we're on a promotions board in two years' time 
to bring a graciousness to interpreting someone's CV in terms of those impacts, you know, and we're not very good, even though intellectually we might say, oh, yes, we recognise that some people were impacted. If we have two CVs sitting in front of us and one right. has been, you know, more prolific in outputs, for example, right. yeah, subconsciously we, I, I'm worried that we can't help but be skewed by that and I, I don't know how we make how we sort of bring more care to these decision processes further down the road when those invisible disabilities play out in in temporal um, ripples right i think i mean we need to start by raising awareness that this mm. is an issue but i do agree it's it's going to be a very hard thing to balance um because so much of advancement or prof professional advancement decisions depend on comparing, well, yeah. here's person A that has done this and here's person B. Uh, but again, because the effects of the pandemic can be rather invisible, it's harder to add that into the equation of comparing two people. Yeah, yeah. Do you know if anyone's doing any research on volunteering? Because I know that many people I speak to are saying, I'm just having to say no to more and more things. And I know that that's true for myself as well. And I wonder if any there's any research on who's, who's getting the privilege of saying no more often. So someone I was talking to just yesterday has just had to put in the equivalent of a tenure case. And mm. they despite having young kids and dealing with lots of sort of issues and challenges, they felt like they still needed particular things to tick off boxes for their for their tenure right. case. So they said yes to things that really made last year really difficult. Um, whereas, you know, as like you, I'm not in a position where I need to pad up, you know, get my CV sort of enhanced. So I have had more freedom to say no. And I wonder who's being caught in that tension as well, you know, and is there any other, any gender differences or, or uh, you know, junior, senior differences? Yeah, I'm not aware of anyone actively yeah. doing research, but the questions do seem obvious. Um, yeah. I, I think, and re reviewing is exactly an example of a volunteer activity that feels like it should by all means not be prioritized compared to everything mm. else that's mm. happening. And so it doesn't surprise me that it is that I'm encountering this. It, mm. I mean, uh, it's disappointing for people to say yes and then to, uh, to commit to it and then have problems along the way. Yeah. Uh, but, but A, who could predict that? And B, yep. we all want to say yes because it's it's a helpful thing right yeah. how, how could i um how could i feel bad about someone who's volunteering <laughs> yeah <laughs> to, who's to wanting to do the right thing wanting to help right <clears throat> right but i i do another thing that concerns me is um you know I'm at a stage in my life where I have developed fairly robust work-life boundaries and I have developed 
a fairly mature level of experience of what I can yeah. can't do. And so I feel pretty comfortable making those choices. I really feel my heart goes out to younger, more junior people who are still forming those boundaries in such a time as this, yeah. where really unrealistic work expectations are being placed on people, unrealistic life expectations could be placed on people depending on what's going on in their family life or what's going on in their locale or their region. Um, and then to to make those work-life boundary habits that may stick with us for a long time, um, that, you know, mm. could be unhealthy. If you make those habits in a crisis mode, um, you may not be able to unwind them yeah. later on when the crisis subsides, but you've sort of set some patterns in your life. Uh, and so I think that's a, yet another thing to try to raise some awareness on, or, or I hope we can help everyone do some resetting uh, of, you know, yeah, we did this, we made these decisions, we um, made these trade-offs during the pandemic because it had to, but when, as that subsides, we should feel free to reconsider those because the expectations are, are not the same. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's really, it is really tricky because people are, there's people are still in having a view to their career progression and their career path. And in academia, I just, I just remember being a nurse and a midwife where I could be hugely busy when I turned up to work to the point where you, you just never even have time to stop for a cup of tea. But I would leave the job at three o'clock or whenever the end of the shift was, and that was the end. And I, unless I sort of just thought about some particular patients, uh, I really didn't have it hanging around in my head either after work. And I might, you know, and then I come back and I say, yeah, okay, who's in the ward today or what's, what are we confronted with? And I just deal with the situation at hand. And it's sort of the extreme opposite end of academia where you always have to have the, you know, people that are on this path and there's sort of this uh, increasing performative pressure and competition. And so you always feel like you have to keep delivering and, um, yeah, and the rejection rates are so high. So, you know, I can see why these boundaries are increasingly hard to maintain in trying to both have a career, build a career and all that's entailed and all of all of these complications. Plus we've removed the office home boundary physically, right? Mm. So uh, it, it, as artificial as that was, there was a notion of going to an office and and then leaving the office and yeah. to some extent leaving that behind. Yeah. But now we're in a world where all of us are working from home and um, we the, the temptation to just add a little bit more mm. at any time of day when you have a spare moment just seems mm. to be... Mm. Um, easier you know more tempting to mm. pick that up and and yeah. <clears throat> that's caused work the amount of work or when it occurs i mean there's great yeah. flexibility in that which is an advantage yeah. but yeah. i think 
it, you lose track of your sense of time or how much time you're investing in things. And I think most of the data would show that we're mm. spending more time uh, at mm. work. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, there there are advantages and disadvantages. Again, I'm just reflecting on a discussion this week with someone who's working from home with a young baby um, and, you know, just said it can be hard but said I also get to have cuddle times, lots of cuddle times during the day that they wouldn't have at work, you know, and I just thought that was a lovely um, positive thing but it's a, yeah, there are some of the other challenges. What do you do to manage your own boundaries there working from home? Do you have any rituals or routines or? Yeah, you know, so the one thing I have appreciated about the flexibility is that I am able to um, take advantage of moments, opportune moments to get outside um, throughout the day. So mm-hmm. uh, when the sun comes out or, or when there are um, things that, that make it attractive to be outdoors where usually, you know, especially if I were away from the office, I wouldn't think to take that time and especially to, you know, share with family. Right. So Mm. now that I'm at home, uh, it gets nice outside. We could go out for a quick walk together. That's, that's really kind of cool. And I don't mind, um, you know, working a little bit later uh, to have, allow that moment to occur in the middle of the day. So for me, I I have been enjoying that flexibility. I I can't say that I'm doing anything better about kind of limiting my total amount of time. I mean, there's an internal kind of calculus I'm doing about, okay, I took that break in the afternoon, so I'll go just Mm -hmm. a little bit later. But, but I suspect if, if someone actually, you know, put a clock on me, I probably am working a little bit more than I would have usually yeah. done. And of course, yeah. you know, I'm missing uh, kind of an hour-ish commute every day. So that's yeah. also time that is now available to do other things with. Mm. Yeah. And and Anna Cox's uh, e-work uh, work life project, I may have got the name uh, slightly wrong, uh, have done some uh, work. They've had some articles about also setting up uh, substitute commutes where, you know, the, the value of what we actually, commutes take time, but there's also something important that happens in that transition space. And yeah, they've got, I can't remember the language that they use, but they have people just sort of uh, cycling around the block or walking around the block at the end of the day as a commute from home. Actually, Microsoft has or will soon announce a virtual commute scheduling um, <laughs> feature in Outlook that um, prompts you to schedule time to give you that transition from work to home and from work home to work that yeah. um, allows you, you know, you sort of so it blocks the time out. It actually also gives you some regularness to it, which is kind of nice about commutes, but also, you know, I'm I'm not 100% sure whether they actually prompt you to th- some activities but um but at least mentally uh prompt you to go through some transitional thinking process you know reflecting on what happened over the day uh maybe mentally thinking about what is ahead in in your home life and so that actually has translated into 
a a product feature uh, in in our productivity suite. All right, that's interesting. It is interesting because when you do have a commute, that is a, a very tangible physical thing that marks some transition. Even if you go home and continue working or whatever, that you don't have and I like that idea of making it more tangible again like saying this is the end of your day it's time for you to you know walk into the next room or whatever it is that you want to do as your virtual commute so I will add a link to the uh, Microsoft Teams virtual commute web page to the notes on our on the on the podcast web page just closing off the issue around reviewers and and the, in, in, you know, the the sort of notion of invisible disabilities. Is there anything else that you would want to say around that? So I just realized as I was seeing it happen, the fact that it wasn't just limited to a couple people, but it was sort of a string of these kinds of, I mean, asking people to do reviews in the first place and the number of people that said, no, I can't just because of childcare, just because of uh, increased work demands. Uh, that was just sort of striking as a trend. Yeah. Um, and, it made me realize that as a community, we needed to, it was a community issue, not an individual issue. Yeah. I mean, it really almost also makes me call into question um, how is it responsible as a community to be, you know, flooding the community with these volunteer requests in such I a time know. like this? Should we somehow think about, um, modifying or mitigating that mm. uh, during this time. So that was one thing. Are there any practical ways that that might play out? Yeah. So, for example, I'm just thinking that we we have this standard thing of we ask for three reviews, you know, in some of our venues, mm -hmm. uh, publication venues mm -hmm. for a paper. Uh, mm -hmm. Would it be an, you know, could we help reduce that load by saying for this time, can we all live with two reviews? Does, and I do I, remember, I think in the very first CSCW conference um, review round in pandemic, I think we did do that. We, oh, great. we had relaxed the number, we reduced it by one. And that made a lot of sense, but then it ratcheted up, I think, then very next cycle, which is okay. a very natural thing to do. Maybe, uh, in in the kind of desperate hope to give some sense of normalcy again or the optimistic hope that we were. So, uh, right. I do think we could rethink what is an appropriate workload to expect during this time. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's also the case that, you know, the whole nature of research conferences and publications are a little are, we're thinking about it a little differently and i think that is fair uh, mm. we should um but right i do think senior people in particular should um not be surprised by it and figure out ways of dealing with it i mean uh how do i want to say this as someone who recognizes that, that I don't have a lot of additional pressures 
no child care, no caregiving. I could look around and say, what is, what's wrong with all these, you know, lightweight people? They're not, they're not able to do that. And yet I, it, you know, I just had to take that moment to realize how privileged or blessed I am in my role and how, frankly, unusual that is for so many people in my community. So again, making, helping increase the visibility of those differential factors. And, and then I do think, right, because it makes life harder for everyone, you know, relaxing the work expectations in some systemic way would be useful, whether we can think about um, maybe we don't need three reviews or uh, other ways in which we can have a fair but streamlined review process. Yeah. yeah. I liked your call for uh, people who are, in more privileged situations or less challenging situations. I think everyone is challenged in some way in this pandemic because it's just the impacts, you know, you have talked about being impacted in, say, performing your role, but you recognise that it's it's a different level and type of impact. But I loved the call that you made for, for everyone just to do a little bit of perspective taking and not right. just be in your own bubble and say, hmm, you know, I can't get my job done. Why aren't these people? You, you promise you get it back. <laughs> You know, and and to you know, I love that call to graciousness and and generosity that uh, you embody so well in in this. Well, and I think I I love attempts to uh, sort of foster and encourage that as a community, um, helping people who are able to see that are able to point it out and able to encourage other people to see it yeah. and, and then figure out how to constructively respond, uh, which yeah. is I love what I love about this platform. Yeah, it, it is. Cause I, and in that vein, what I would also love to encourage is the people who get review requests. So I, uh, you know, you and I are co-editors of a, of a journal special issue at the moment. So one of my, challenges that has been shared with yours is about trying to get reviewers on board and to say yes and it's been really frustrating when people haven't replied and I I just want to say to people as well you know like in this looking after us all looking after one another reply it's you know the kind thing to do is to reply no is a completely fine and understandable answer but not replying is not kind, not helpful, not not caring for the peer community and for every you know, recognizing because that impacts the role of editors or associate chairs, and it impacts the authors because there's a time period for them to respond, and then you've got to start again to think of someone. So it means the authors, who may be these students who are trying to get their thesis defence with certain publications accepted, um, yeah, or, you know they're. Tenure promote tenure case or promotion case or job case or impacted. Uh, so yeah, so I'd love us all to have that sort of. I'd love to encourage that generosity and graciousness from everybody, so that we we recognise the response came and, and respond. The question came and we respond. 
I, I do agree that um, responses, no matter how brief and almost even if they come across curt because they come up because they're so brief are, are really helpful. I mean, hmm. so many of my frustrations are not about things not getting done. It's about not knowing, not, not getting knowing. an update. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, and here's a twist. Wouldn't it be interesting if um, people who, who are more senior and a little less affected by the pandemic actually took on more reviewing? We've been actually trying to worry. We've been worrying about how to get senior members of the community more engaged uh, mm. and participating in mm. venues because it seems like they have been passing it off to their students or, or things. But what if at a time such as this, those people would actually do more of the reviews uh, yeah. because they're less impacted and have the ability to do that. So that'd be kind of a cool side effect if that happened. Yeah. Yeah. So there are multiple ways that we can bring care to the community you know, and everyone can, everyone can play a role, whether it's the senior person stepping up and doing more or someone getting a review request, actually responding in a timely way or, reviewers who know they're going to be late just communicating that and setting it you know just saying when they may um do it and authors you know recognizing that things may not happen in as timely a way as they could otherwise so there's sort of a graciousness and generosity all around right and i do like that um that encouragement to you know do what you can even if saying no quickly is what you can do is that is actually a helpful thing yeah it is it is helpful it is helpful yeah yeah these are interesting times and it'll be it will be interesting to see what affects well as we talked about the effects that will flow through on in time the the negative effects, but also what might be the positive changes that come out of this, you know, in uh, which could be new new reviewing models or conference models or, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I um, I'm not sure even whether to say I'm not sure whether to say this out loud, but even. Uh, people that might choose to stay engaged with the community a little longer than they might have expected. I mean, um, some people I think have perhaps deferred or postponed retirement or stepping back um, because of things have both become so uncertain, but also, you know, the, other alternatives are not so attractive. Like, what am I going to mm. do? Travel? Mm. No. <laughs> <laughs> so I might as well, uh, you know, help out uh, because the, the things that mm. I might do with my extra time are, are not exactly available to me. Mm. So maybe I'll just stay engaged with my community a little bit longer. Yeah. So, right. Maybe that could even be a bit of a, um, a silver lining in this. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Can I just shift the conversation a bit just quickly? In, um, you're, because I'm <laughs> struck by the fact that 
you have you're an expert in technology supporting distributed collaboration and that's been your research area for gazillions of years and you've played out that research it sorry don't mean that you're that old but that um because i is how long have you been working in this research area it has been since your yeah no since yeah, the 80s I, yeah yeah so it's been definitely over 30 years and i've also been one of those um rare people that have stayed within a, a, the same ballpark of research throughout almost my entire career yeah. and yeah, it's been super and, interesting be, because and in an industry context which is unusual that yes. it hasn't been skewed and sorry yes. and you were saying it's super interesting it's super interesting because um a lot of the research that we have done over the past decades suddenly is having a moment and we've there's there's several artifacts of that first of all you know technology transfer even in industry is not a straightforward process and we went through years of coming up with these interesting prototypes and showing them to the product team and mm. that just not being very interested in it and it's you know we've been reflecting on how HCI research in particular, our ideas tend to be ideas that are like novel, innovative, maybe disruptive ideas. And those are pretty scary to a product team, right? We're, we're basically saying, hey, there's this new way of thinking about this that could be really helpful. And they go, well, that's not anything like what our, our current product is. And for us to explore that would mean a pretty risky change in how we think about our product. So I'm not sure, you know, we're doing that. And we'll go back, well, but, but that's what makes it exciting. No other competitor is doing this yet. And we could have the chance to do the first, be the first there. And that's frankly very scary to a product mm. team. And so a lot of those ideas just didn't get very much traction. But now <clears throat> where um, some of the things that we as researchers knew would be problems are becoming much more um first-hand experience, I think there is a more receptivity and more interest to some of these ideas. And we've been like super busy trying to figure out how to take these ideas and help a product team implement them. And the other weird thing is that we've had to revisit projects that were 5, 10, 20 years old. I mean, even the media space work from yes. 30 years or so ago is yes. now coming up as, oh, yeah, if only we had an always-on video connection with the people that we interact closely with, this would be yeah. so much better. And and indeed, we know a lot about what those kinds of connections could be like. And we now have an infrastructure technology that can actually support it in a pretty flexible way. In a so way it's been a totally in interesting experience on, right, Right. It was much harder, you know, much more expensive, much less flexible to do that back in the media space days where we actually mm. had to kind of run connections or special connections between Palo Alto and Portland when Xerox Park mm. did that connection. Were you involved so, in that project? I was uh, I was at Park during the time and I would wander mm. through that lobby, that connected lobby. Um, so I, I, I wasn't actively involved in doing research, but I experienced it. Yeah. Mm. So this, for people who aren't aware of this, can you just paint the picture? So, um, right, the Palo Alto Portland link from Xerox Park, um, there was a research group deliberately 
located in a geographically remote location up in Portland, in part because there was kind of a, you know, a more affordable or different life pace there. And uh, among that, at the time, our research group was connected with a media space, uh, something that allowed you to make audio video connections to any other um, office, whether that be in Palo Alto or up in Portland. And in particular, we created a always on connection between sort of a commons area in the two mm-hmm. respective places. So there was a um, commons that had a bunch of couches. It was it, it sort of in the center. The, all of our offices opened into it. And so it was a very natural congregation place in Palo Alto. And they recreated that up in Portland as well. So having that always on video connection made it relatively easy to enter a space and say, hey, mm. you know, Mary, can we talk about this or to notice what was going on uh, remotely? It, it really uh, it was like a geographical shortcut to mm. another place, it gave you that same sense of awareness and that same sense of availability, even though we weren't in the same geographic location. Mm. And so that is very much coming up as an issue now that we're all not in the same geog- yeah. geography and yeah. having to, make these informal, spontaneous, serendipitous connections. Um, And I think we've all experienced that, uh, yes, you could schedule a Zoom call to have those connections, but that is exactly, that's very different than the unplanned serendipitous connections that we had in shared office spaces. Yeah, and that's something that... um, I, I really recognise I miss with my team. I put out a short uh, podcast a, a little while ago just saying that, you know, I, I realised in this last period that there was something that I had been under-managing and, you know, I may have a tendency to that anyway or I'd rather frame it as trusting people and letting them get on, but I, I just realised that I relied so much on just being in the same space and those quick conversations or checking in or overhearing, you know, the things that we know about how distributed work, collaborative work happens in just being in the same space and being able to overhear or see what's going on. And so we miss all of those cues and those information sources that we don't, that are hard to get in the formal meeting where we go into formal meeting mode. So you you did a lot of work with uh, video conferencing over the years as well in its more sort of formal video conferencing sense. What are the things in the Zoom times, Zoom pandemic times that have, I don't know, surprised you or not surprised you? Um, you know, yeah. This is, the, the, this is a massive large-scale experiment of video conferencing that we've never had before. Right. I mean, the fatigue did not surprise me. Um, the mm-hmm. amount of attention it takes to um, maintain a conversation uh, that is consistent with, you know, our research experience. I think the um, the the loss of spontaneity and serendipity didn't surprise me, but the solutions are still a little bit elusive. Like how do we Mm. restore that 
bumping into people uh, when everything is online and currently at least everything's very intentional. I think I mean, we, we are exploring some ideas. And again, some of them are ideas that we surfaced decades ago uh, and now even have new, maybe more efficient ways of noticing um, what I call working nearby in a digital realm, mm-hmm. you know, that we, we both uh, ha- saw the same YouTube video or online yeah. article. And so we yeah. might have that in common. And if only we knew that we could actually use that to strike up a conversation, which it, it's kind of cool to think about mm. how you could do that. Um, I think the, the thing that surprised me a little bit and is coming out is how, and it shouldn't have really is that all this intentional remote connection is maintaining strong ties, but we're losing weak ties, the the ones that we don't go out of our way to connect with. And um, I'm noticing how much the weak ties add to the sort of richness and variety of my life. Because the strong ties, the people that I connect with, are pretty predictable. <laughs> I I know what I need to go ask them about and I kind of know things that they would ask me about. Um, but this is a great example of a weak tie. That's just totally yes. delightful. Yeah. You know, I know that you have these interests, but I wouldn't have gone out of my way to uh, arrange for this conversation yeah. with you, but it was sort of delightful that a passing comment in an email message that I made to you connected this rich conversation. And, and it's and, um, an invitation two hours ago and here we are chatting. <laughs> right, right. Un- talk about unplanned and yet sometimes it, yeah. it, it does work. And, and, it's, yeah. and it's fun and exciting when that works, right? That's mm. what's um, rich and uh, enriching about serendipitous encounters. It's because mm. it's so unexpected mm. and ends up being, you know, delightful or productive that you you come away feeling empowered instead of drained by another Zoom meeting that you've had to schedule and prepare for and, and work through. Yes. And any 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 other surprises? Well, I've been surprised at how actually um, how we've been able to migrate to online uh, as smoothly as we apparently have. And the other thing, and I'm, I'm super interested in how this global increase in video literacy and remote collaboration, what that's going to enable in the future. I mean, right. I, I joked in a Facebook post, you know, my, um, my research career has spanned, uh, being part of the team that invented one of the very first hardware video digital capture boards to the point now where people are sick of having too much video calling, right? That that was a researcher's dream. We we could always, we were always begging people to try out our video prototype and, and it was so hard to get people to do that. Now everyone's had this firsthand experience and, and I'm intrigued about how much that increased awareness and literacy and capability is going to enable us to do new things in the future. Yes. Yeah. And the other thing I've been surprised at is how it has increased our acceptance of um, 
not being there in person and how that actually opens up some opportunities and blurring the difference between live and pre-recorded. Um, mm. So I, I've just been noticing in so many of even, you know, the Hollywood production, um, the uh, award shows that we've just gone through that season, how there is this sort of blurring of live and pre-recorded in a way that doesn't really need explanation or uh, any apologies for her because mm. we all realize that there, there's difficulties and and you can do it well you can do it with good production values and it doesn't come across as lame just like you know um participating via video now doesn't seem like it's lame uh as someone that's um you know planning a class and inviting guest lectures we used to be limited to guest lectures who were nearby or were happening to pass through on just that date. Now mm. I have the entire world of experts open that could come via video yeah. and students are accepting of it. And frankly, they're getting a better experience because mm. we're more accepting to mm. ver- video participation instead of insisting that it be live. And so that I think... I think it's interesting and and the blurring of live and pre-recorded gets at a, an axis in the CCW field that I've always been intrigued at, you know, mm-hmm. blurring that difference between synchronous and asynchronous. That's been a very yeah. hard line that we haven't been able to cross for quite a while. And now I think there's maybe some new opportunity to do something different in that space. Yeah, yeah. What's what's also really funny is in talking about now we get the opportunity to invite all these people from anywhere to do a you know, to participate remotely. We've always had that opportunity. Technically, we just it just wasn't socially acceptable or as acceptable in the in the in the classroom context or whatever that you know it it was the sort of the better thing to have them standing there in front of the class, whereas we could have always had them participate via video. Right, right. So that social acceptance, which is always mm. the key to technology, right, is um, really going to open up some opportunities. And I mean, think about this in all sorts of realms, like uh, participating in family events, weddings, or memorials, right, where mm. the hassle of getting there often restricted when they could happen or who could be involved. Now we actually could think about that a little bit more flexibly and um, they could still be very meaningful moments just enabled by some remote um, collaboration Mm -hmm. technology. Yeah. Yeah. It will be interesting to see how all this plays out and on all of the different ways that we've talked about. Uh, So I I should probably let you go because this is the end of your day and it is oh no it's your Thursday it's not Friday I was going to say it's Friday but it's only Friday for me and uh, are there any do you have any final thoughts or things that you'd want to say or that we haven't touched upon um you know I think we covered a lot of ground uh see I, I right I think I was just struck in in confronting and reflecting that there's just so much overwork going on, so much exhaustion, so many um, competing demands for our yeah. attention and energy that um, it 
it and it and it was just so common that it was so systemic that we just really needed to again think about it as a community problem, not an individual problem, and figure out how we can help each other work through this aspect of it, which is a little bit hidden and um, hard to explain and very personal. And yet um, in the aggregate, I think it's affecting a lot of people to the point that we should think about it, kind of care for each other as a community in in how we respond to that. Yeah. I think that framing of it as a community problem is really important and a systemic problem because we too often frame a lot of these things as it's all about the individual and becoming more resilient or you know managing their own work life boundaries and they're all part of it i it's, it's but it's those things are pretty useless in the face of bigger systemic structural things that aren't supportive uh, and enabling of good choices so Yes. Right. And putting my accessibility hat on again, it it just emphasizes, you know, a lot of people think people with disabilities, they need to be fixed or they need to have some assistive technology that enables them to participate in society. But in fact, it's a social issue. It's we as a society need to figure out how to include and embrace people of all diverse abilities. And so it's not just a matter of giving them the right assistive technology to participate in society. It's we as a society figuring out how can we um, make sure that it is accessible to people with diverse abilities. Indeed. Thank you very much for your time today, John. Really appreciate it. Sure. Well, thanks for bringing this together, making it happen and sharing it with uh, Mm. our community. Great. You can find the summary notes and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and now also on Stitcher. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues so that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently.